Welcome to Shorties, a short true crime story. Hello, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It's almost the end of our season. Yeah, and I just want to go ahead and say right at, right at the top that I am wide awake and present and so you might as well stop wondering if I'm wide awake and present I slept enough if you wanted to know and I have been sleeping enough for several days in a row I have been feeling good I I feel at the top of my game peak physical condition (laughs) um so I basically got all of this information from Wikipedia in fact most of it was just copied directly off the site because there was so much airplane lingo that I didn't understand that I was like I don't know how to rephrase this in my own words it's like that one time you did the basketball story and I'm like what are you saying to me do you know what you're saying (laughs) no (laughs) you sounded good but do you know (laughs) no is the short answer so uh so this is similar I I'm this involves a lot of airplane lingo. Okay. 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 So I'm going to do the story of DB Cooper today. I love that you're doing this because yesterday's story was, they thought he was one of the suspects. I know. And I found that so interesting that I know. Fires me up. Anyways. Okay. Fires you up. Fires me up. (laughs) Are you fired up? Well, I'm awake. (laughs) I said, I told you I'm doing good on it. (laughs) I told you at the beginning I'm awake. Stop wondering. Stop asking. Okay. So our story begins on November 24th, 1971. It's the day before Thanksgiving, so the Portland International Airport is busy. A middle-aged man who identified himself as Dan Cooper used cash to purchase a one-way ticket for Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305, which would be about a 30-minute flight to Seattle. Witnesses described him as a quiet man in his 40s, about 5'10 and 180 pounds, with close-set piercing eyes and swarthy skin. He was wearing a business suit with a white shirt and black skinny tie and carried a small black briefcase. He boarded, took his seat in the rear of the plane, and ordered a bourbon and soda. Mm. Mm. Mm, My guy. (laughs) (laughs) They took off on time at 2.50 p.m., and within a few minutes, this man, Cooper, handed the flight attendant, Florence Schaffner, a folded piece of paper. She assumed it was his phone number, so she dropped it in her bag without looking at it. And after seeing her do that, the man leaned forward again and calmly whispered, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> Takes out, unfolds it. <laughs> oh, shit. I thought it was your number. <laughs> Checks the box on uh, interested or not interested. Yeah. So the exact wording on the note is unknown because at some point during this whole ordeal, Cooper took the note back. But Florence claimed it was written in very neat, all capital letters with a felt tipped pen. She says that it stated that Cooper had a bomb in his briefcase, and after he watched her read it, he asked her to sit down in the seat next to his, which she did. She asked to see the bomb, and he readily opened his briefcase to show her four red cylinders on top of four more cylinders attached to red wires and a large battery. Florence described Cooper as calm, polite, and well-spoken during all of this. She said he then closed the briefcase and gave her his demands to take to the pilot's. He said he wanted $200,000 in negotiable American currency, two primary parachutes, two reserve parachutes, and a fuel truck waiting on the tarmac in Seattle to refill the plane after landing. And apparently negotiable American currency means he didn't have a preference in terms of the bills supplied. So like 20s or 50s Mm -hmm. or 100s, like he was cool with any of it. (laughs) $200,000 in 1971 would be a little over $1.3 million today. 
So okay. he, it was I a also big, would like that then. I would like it too. And, but I think that's a big ask. I just wouldn't take a plane. Down no, I wouldn't do it, it. Way either. No. So Florence went to the pilots, told them what was going on. And when she went back to Cooper, he was waiting in his seat with his sunglasses on. Okay. <laughs> I hate it when people wear sunglasses on, on a plane. It just makes you look like you're on drugs. I know. The pilots informed air traffic controllers in Seattle, who in turn informed local and federal agents. The CEO of the airline instructed the flight staff to cooperate with the hijacker and approve the ransom payment. This flight was only meant to be 30 minutes, but in order to give the authorities time to gather all that Cooper had requested and assemble emergency personnel at the airport, the other 35 passengers on board were told there would be a delay in their arrival due to a minor mechanical difficulty. And then they proceeded to circle above the Puget Sound for two hours. I'd be pissed. Can you imagine being on a 30-minute flight, then hearing there's mechanical difficulties so you can't land, and then you just circle for two hours? Makes no sense. No. I would. My butt would be sweating. My Oh, my gosh. I'd Can be you even swimming imagine? in my seat. Yes, swamp ass. <laughs> One of the other flight attendants, a woman named Tina Mucklow, stated that Cooper seemed familiar with the area they were flying over. And at one point looked out the window and said, looks like Tacoma down there. He also accurately told her that McCord Air Force Base was at the time about a 20 minute drive from Seattle Tacoma Airport. So that with some other details that I'll get into later have led people to think that maybe he was an Air Force veteran. She also said that he was very nice during the whole flight. She said, quote, he seemed rather nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm all the time. <laughs> Can you imagine just being like, yeah, he's a very pleasant person. I actually enjoyed my time with him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Cooper ordered a second bourbon and soda, paid his tab, and tried to give the flight attendant the change as a tip. He even suggested to the flight crew that if they wanted, he could request meals for them to be delivered with his demands while on the ground in Seattle. Like if, in case they were Get hungry for something. dinner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Authorities communicated from the ground that they would provide military-grade parachutes, but Cooper rejected that and instead requested civilian parachutes with manual rip cords. So authorities scramble and get civilian parachutes from a nearby skydiving school. They're like, we, we were going to give you like the best of the best. Why would you want like lower grade parachutes? Maybe easier to operate or something. Maybe. After confirming that his demands were met, Cooper agreed to let the pilots land at Seattle-Tacoma Airport at 5.39 p.m. It was dark by then, so Cooper instructed them to taxi the plane to an isolated but well-lit area of the tarmac. He also insisted that all of the window shades be pulled down so as to deter any snipers from trying to take him out while they were on the ground. The airline's operations manager, a man named Al Lee, changed into civilian clothes and approached the aircraft with a bag of money and parachutes. Once Cooper had his demands in hand, he ordered all 35 passengers and the two flight attendants to leave the plane. While the plane was being refueled, Cooper went to the pilots and talked over the very detailed instructions that he had for the next flight. According to Wikipedia, Cooper instructed the pilots to follow a southeast course toward Mexico City at the minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft, approximately 100 knots, which is 150 miles per hour, at a maximum 10,000-foot altitude. He further specified that the landing gear remain deployed in the takeoff landing position, the wing flaps be lowered 15 degrees, and the cabin remain unpressurized. The pilots informed Cooper that flying from Seattle to Mexico City would require a fuel stop, so after discussing a few options, they all agreed that they'd make a fuel stop in Reno, Nevada. 
the most beautiful place on earth. (laughs) (laughs) Cooper told the pilots to leave the rear stairs open during takeoff, but they insisted that wasn't safe and that they should close the staircase. And so Cooper was like, well, actually it is safe, but like, okay, fine, close it. And I'll just open it again while we're in the air. Even better. (laughs) Yeah, even better. So at 7.40 p.m., the plane takes off from Seattle. There are a total of five people on board, two pilots, one flight attendant, and one flight engineer, and then obviously the hijacker. The flight attendant was the only person to remain in the cabin with Cooper. The rest were all in the cockpit. During the flight, two fighter jets from a nearby Air Force base shadowed the passenger plane, one above and one below, but both completely out of view of anyone on the hijacked aircraft. And then soon after, more jets join in formation. Not long after takeoff, Cooper tells the flight attendant to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and to close the door behind her. As she was doing this, she watched Cooper tie something around his waist. At approximately 8 p.m., a warning light inside of the cockpit lit up, which told the crew that the rear stairs had been opened. The crew asked Cooper via the intercom if he needed assistance, and he declined. Just like really polite. Yeah. <laughs> Do you need some help back there, sir? He seems really nice. Yeah. At 8.13 p.m., a sudden upward movement from the tail end of the plane happens, which leads most people to believe that that was the moment Cooper jumped. Despite there ending up being a total of five jets encircling the hijacked plane after takeoff from Seattle, and the fact that they think they know the very moment that he jumped, none of the pilots in the surrounding jets witnessed Cooper's jump from the plane, and no one could pinpoint exactly where the plane was when his jump occurred. A superhero. I know, but that sounded so crazy to me because I was like, what the hell? That's why you were following the plane. How could you all miss it? But then I read it was nighttime. Cooper was wearing all black and he likely jumped into a really dark and isolated area of land. So I guess it's not that crazy. After landing the hijacked plane in Reno at 1015 p.m., FBI agents, state troopers, sheriff's deputies, and Reno police boarded the plane, but Cooper was long gone. So obviously, a huge investigation begins. Authorities picked up over 65 fingerprints on the plane. They found Cooper's tie and Mother of Pearl tie clip on board, as well as two of the four parachutes that he had requested. They also found a total of eight Raleigh cigarette butts believed to have been his. However, At some point in time, those cigarette butts were lost and they were never recovered, which is such a bummer. One of the parachutes left behind had been opened and Cooper had removed suspension lines that were cut from the canopy. And it's believed that was probably what he used to tie the bag of money around his waist, which is what that flight attendant saw him doing as she closed the the cockpit door. Mm -hmm. Authorities interviewed over 800 suspects, witnesses from Portland and Seattle, and of course, every single person who interacted with Cooper that day. Even though the hijacker identified himself in Portland as Dan Cooper, one of the suspects interviewed was a low-level criminal in Portland named D.B. Cooper. Authorities ruled that suspect out right away, but not before a reporter mistakenly mixed the names up. And so history has forever referred to this hijacker as D.B. Cooper. It's catchy. It's catchier than Dan. I I do like it. I like it better than Dan. D.B. is better than Dan. (laughs) Yeah. So trying to pinpoint a specific search area turned out to be insanely hard to do. The FBI said, quote, 
A precise search area was difficult to define, as even small differences in estimates of the aircraft's speed or the environmental conditions along the flight path, which varied significantly by location and altitude, changed Cooper's projected landing point considerably. Not knowing how long he was in free fall before opening his parachute was also a very big factor that was unfortunately a big mystery. Authorities went so far as to use the same pilots from the hijacked plane to recreate the same flight path from Seattle to Reno. FBI agents pushed a 200-pound sled out of the rear stairs, and it resulted in recreating the same sudden upward movement that the crew felt from the tail end of the plane at 8.13 p.m. And I didn't want to be, like, critical because it's the FBI, so I assume they'd, like, do their job correct. But Mm -hmm. they just pushed a 200-pound sled 10,000 feet in the air, and, like, what did it land on? Did they know that it wasn't going to land on anyone? (laughs) It's a really good point. I feel like there's another way of doing that, like another simulation. But, you know. But what do we know? What do we know? We are not the FBI. <laughs> no. Maybe we're better. Oh. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Shots fired. Uh-oh. I hope you don't hear this. Your feelings are about to get hurt. <laughs> I hope the FBI doesn't listen. Burn. <laughs> All we, of a sudden, I have like weird confidence. We I, are our own best audience. We are. I know. No one else is laughing. They're just sitting in their cars like, please just wrap this up. Just what like, happened I don't want to. I don't want to listen to them anymore. (laughs) I don't like their confidence. So it's almost guaranteed that Cooper jumped at that moment, but to make things more complicated, and this made me feel bad for judging the other jets about not seeing Cooper jump. Okay. During take your judgment back. I take it. They'll be relieved. Just just, they're going to be relieved. They're going to be relieved to hear that. So during the moment that they believed that he jumped, they had been flying through a very heavy rainstorm directly above the Lewis River in southwestern Washington. So an expansive search of the Lewis River was conducted by boat, foot, and helicopters. They found broken treetops and various plastic pieces that resembled a parachute, but it was never confirmed to be relevant to the investigation. A month after the hijacking, the FBI released the list containing all of the serial numbers on the ransom money to law enforcement around the world, as well as every major casino and racetracks and any other businesses that routinely dealt with large sums of cash. Not long after this, those same serial numbers were released to the general public, and it didn't do shit to help and actually just invited scams. Two assholes used counterfeit bills with the appropriate serial numbers to swindle $30,000 from a reporter who thought he was getting an exclusive interview with Cooper himself. So remember, this was in late November. So after the initial search of the Lewis River, authorities had to wait until everything thawed in the spring before they could do another search. They spent a total of 36 days over March and April of 1972, searching the whole area again, but still with no luck. And then years later, authorities determined that the original calculations regarding the spot where Cooper jumped was incorrect. So they spent all that time searching the wrong area completely. (laughs) So irritating. I would be very irritated. I would be so pissed. pissed. According to Wikipedia, only four pieces of evidence, two definite and two potential, linked to D.B. Cooper have turned up since 1978. In November of 1978, a placard printed with instructions for lowering the rear stairs of a 727 aircraft was found by a deer hunter near a logging road 13 miles east of Castle Rock, Washington. That area is north of the area authorities had searched, but within the hijacked plane's flight path. On February 10th, 1980, so this is almost 10 years after the hijacking, Eight-year-old Brian Ingram was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River, about nine miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington. 
he uncovered three packets of the ransom cash as he was playing in the sand. The bills were significantly disintegrated, but still bundled in rubber bands. That would be like a core memory as a kid, being like, oh. I was just digging and I found treasure. Oh my gosh, he literally found yeah, treasure. Incredible. FBI technicians confirmed that the money was indeed a portion of the ransom. It was two packets of $120 bills each and a third packet of 90 all arranged in the same order as when given to Cooper. In 1986, after protracted negotiations, the recovered bills were divided equally between Ingram and Northwest Orient's insurer. The FBI retained 14 of the bills as evidence. Ingram sold 15 of his bills at auction in 2008 for about $37,000. Can you imagine that? I have a, so I was just thinking, I was just thinking here for a second. <laughs> so you're that kid, you find this cash, you tell your parents, your parents are like, oh, we have to give it back. Well, what if you don't want to give it back and you end up spending it, then it gets flagged. Do you get in trouble for that? Um, it's like I fi- finders keepers, losers weepers. Well, I mean, that's the thing is he did keep a bunch of it and he okay. gave 14 pieces to the FBI and then uh, Northwest Orient, the airline's insurance company, they got a little bit of it because they were the ones who fronted the cash for the ransom. Gotcha. So he still did get to keep a lot of okay, it. And good. then, and that was in 1980. So then he didn't sell any of them until 2008. So obviously he grew up Profit. and was like, I got to cash in on these a little bit. Smart. <laughs> yeah. Life, being adults are harder than I thought it was. It's a lot harder. <laughs> to date, none of the 9,710 remaining bills have turned up anywhere in the world. And their serial numbers remain available online for public search. The Columbia River ransom money and the rear stair instruction placard remain the only confirmed physical evidence from the hijacking to ever be found outside of the aircraft. In 2017, a group of volunteer investigators uncovered what they believe to be potential evidence, what appears to be a decades-old parachute strap in the Pacific Northwest. This was followed later in August of 2017 with a piece of foam suspected of being part of Cooper's backpack, but those two items are believed to be linked. It's just not confirmed. So the other two at the beginning, those are confirmed for sure, having been having been linked to him. Gotcha. The FBI announced in 2007 that three samples of DNA were found on Cooper's tie clip, but they couldn't determine if it was his DNA or someone else's. They also announced that Cooper had chosen the older of the two primary parachutes applied to him rather than the technically superior professional sport parachute and that from the two reserve parachutes, he selected a dummy, which was an unusable, inoperative parachute intended for classroom demonstrations only. They said it had clear markings identifying it to any experienced skydiver as non-functional, and the FBI stressed that including the dummy reserve parachute was accidental. And I kind of like don't know if I believe. I don't that. agree, or I don't. I don't agree with that uh, like, opinion. Remember, they offered him like military grade parachutes, and yes. when he declined them. I get that they had to scramble to find less superior ones <laughs> and they just went to like a nearby skydiving school. But you'd think that they would confirm that all of them were operable, especially because it was them. It was the FBI. They thought that the reason he asked for four was that he was trying to give the impression he would make a hostage jump with him. So you're which basically would making gar- someone die. No, no, no. It would guarantee that the FBI provides operable, safe parachutes. So the FBI believed that that was why he asked for four. Yeah. So I have to assume that if they really did believe that it was an accident that they gave him a dummy one. Okay. But at the same time, they're never going to admit that they like if they did that on purpose. Yeah. 
Eyewitness accounts suggested that Cooper was knowledgeable about flying technique, the aircraft, and the terrain. He chose a 72700 aircraft because it was ideal for a bailout escape due to not only its rear stairs, but also the high aftward placement of all three engines, which allowed a reasonably safe jump despite the proximity of the engine exhaust. It had single point fueling capability, a then recent innovation that allowed all tanks to be refueled rapidly through a single fuel port. It also had the ability to remain in slow, low-altitude flight without stalling, which was unusual for a commercial jet, and Cooper knew how to control its airspeed and the altitude without ever entering the cockpit. In addition, Cooper was familiar with important details, such as the appropriate flap setting of 15 degrees, which was unique to that aircraft, and the typical refueling time. Was this the stuff that you copied? Can, is it not obvious no you're saying it with such confidence i'm like holy shit she knows what she's talking about no this is all coffee not a girl i like the confidence he also knew that the rear stairs could be lowered during flight a fact that was never disclosed to civilian flight crews since there was no situation on a passenger flight that would make it necessary and that its operation by a single switch in the rear of the cabin could not be overridden from the cockpit some of this knowledge was unique to CIA paramilitary units. So. What you just said, I didn't really understand a lot of that. And I just was like, why are you looking at me? I don't want to say anything. I was waiting for you to respond. It's, it's what's interesting is some of that stuff yeah. was unique to CIA. Some of that. CIA. <laughs> some. So close to me. (laughs) What's interesting is some of this knowledge was unique to the CIA. Got okay, okay. It it wasn't even available to the civilian flight crews, like the flight attendants and the pilots and those people. I see. So, do you understand that? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You're picking up what I'm putting. Do you understand that? That's impressive. (laughs) As time has gone on, the FBI has become less and less convinced that Cooper had professional skydiving experience. FBI Special Agent Larry Carr was the Bureau's leader of their D.B. Cooper investigation team from 2006 to 2016, and he said, quote, We originally thought Cooper was an experienced jumper, perhaps even a paratrooper. We concluded after a few years this was simply not true. A Boeing 727 at flaps 15 degrees and lightweight probably flies at 172 miles per hour. No experienced parachutist would have jumped in the pitch black night in the rain with 172 mile per hour wind in his face, wearing loafers and a trench coat. It was simply outfit. (laughs) I'm kidding. It was simply too risky. He also missed that his reserve parachute was only for training and had been sewn shut. Something a skilled skydiver would have checked. Unquote. He also didn't bring a helmet or request one in his ransom. And that was a really big deal because any parachutist would have known that he needed a helmet. The FBI speculated from the beginning that Cooper did not survive his jump. And Larry Carr also said, quote, diving into the wilderness without a plan, without the right equipment in such terrible conditions, he probably never even got his chute open. And even if he did land safely, agents contended that survival in the mountainous terrain at the onset of winter would have been all but impossible without an accomplice at a predetermined landing point. This would have required a precisely timed jump necessitating, in turn, cooperation from the flight crew, 
but there is no evidence that Cooper requested or received any such help from the crew, nor that he had any clear idea where he was when he jumped into the stormy overcast darkness. FBI agents theorized that Cooper took his alias from a popular Belgian comic book series of the 1970s, featuring the fictional hero Dan Cooper, a Royal Canadian Air Force test pilot who took part in numerous heroic adventures, including parachuting. One cover from the series, which is on the FBI website, depicts test pilot Cooper skydiving in full paratrooper gear. Because the Dan Cooper comics were never translated into English or even imported to the U.S., they speculated that he may have encountered them during a tour of duty in Europe. The FBI suggested the alternative possibility that Cooper was actually Canadian and found the comics in Canada where they were also sold. They noted his specific demand for negotiable American currency because that's a phrase seldom, if ever, used by American citizens. And the Canadian theory is stronger when you consider that witnesses stated that Cooper had no distinguishable accent. So if he wasn't actually from the U.S., Canada makes the most sense for the next possible option. So if you research possible D.B. Cooper suspects, you could literally spend a week going down that rabbit hole, which I did. (laughs) So... I can't talk about all the suspects because it would just take way too long, but I chose the most compelling one to spotlight. Walter R. Rica, who would have been 38 in 1971, was a Michigan native, a military veteran, and original member of the Michigan Parachute Team. He was proposed as a suspect by his friend Carl Lauren, a former commercial airline pilot and expert parachuter himself, at a press conference on May 17, 2018. What a snitch. (laughs) Well, just wait. (laughs) (laughs) Carl says that 10 years prior in 2008, his friend Walter confessed to being D.P. Cooper in a recorded phone call. Walter gave Carl permission in a notarized letter to share his story after he died in 2014 at the age of 80. He also allowed Carl to tape their phone conversations about the crime over a six-week period in late 2008. In the over three hours of recordings, Walter gave new details about the hijacking that the public had not heard before. He said that using his years of training to determine the location of the jump, Carl concluded that D.B. Cooper landed near Cleelum, Washington. According to written testimony, a Cleelum native named Jeff Oziadax was driving his dump truck near Cleelum the night of November 24, 1971, when he saw a man walking down the side of the road in the shit weather, because remember, it was shit weather. Yeah, in November. <laughs> yeah. He assumed the man's car had broken down and he was walking to get assistance, and Jeff didn't have room in his truck to pick him up, so he just kept driving until he got to his destination, which was the Tina Way Junction Cafe just outside Cleelum. After ordering coffee, the man from the side of the road also entered the cafe looking like, quote, a drowned rat, according to Jeff. The man from the road sat next to Jeff and asked him if he, the man who had been walking, called a friend of his, would Jeff be able to tell the friend where they were located so that the friend could come pick him up? Jeff said yes, and he spoke with the man's friend on the phone, giving him directions to the cafe. Shortly after that, Jeff got up to leave. The man offered to pay for his coffee, and the two parted amicably. So after hearing this, Carl began his search for Jeff. And remember, this is decades and decades later. We have no idea if that man's even alive. We don't even know if he really exists, but, you know. Walter admitted in his confession to Carl that he didn't know where that whole ordeal took place, but he did describe the landscape he saw while on his way to the drop zone. 
two bridges, some distinct lights, and his description of the exterior and interior of the cafe, as well as his encounter with Jeff. Remember, he doesn't know Jeff's name. That was just some guy that he he chatted with. So when Carl starts his search for Jeff, he doesn't even know anything. anything. Other. <laughs> he doesn't know anything other than the way that Walter had described him, which was a cowboy. <laughs> oh, there's not very many. No. Carl poured over maps to find the landmarks that Walter had described. And then he began making phone calls about the cowboy who had d- driven a dump truck. <laughs> Miraculously, Carl actually tracks Jeff down. And Jeff remembered meeting a man that night, and he described what the man was wearing and what he looked like. And after Carl sent Jeff a photo of Walter, Jeff confirmed that was the man that he had met at the cafe. What are the friggin' chances? I know. And in addition to the hours of tape confession, Carl also has a written confession by Walter and long underwear allegedly worn by him under his suit uh, during the hijacking. In 2016, Carl took all of this information to publisher Principia Media, who consulted with Joe Koenig, which is a uh, forensic linguist. He evaluated all the documents, including passports, identification cards, photographs, and newspaper clippings, and he found no evidence of tampering or manipulation and deemed all documentation authentic. After comparing Carl's research to the available FBI records, he found no discrepancies that eliminated Walter as a suspect. He also thought it was particularly significant that Jeff's statement of events on the night of November 24th was identical to the statements that Walter has also made about their interaction that same night. Principia Media released a four-part documentary detailing their investigation based off of Carl's reports, which is on um, Amazon Prime. And I couldn't find anywhere that said whether or not the FBI had an opinion on Walter as a suspect, but I think it's because in July of 2016, the FBI announced that it was suspending active investigations of the Cooper case, citing a need to focus its investigative resources and manpower on issues of higher and more urgent priority. And given that Carl released all this info two years later in 2018, I think that the FBI just like hasn't looked into it. (laughs) Okay, they have enough on their plate. Yeah, I guess so. So even though they suspended their active investigation, local FBI field offices will continue to accept any legitimate physical evidence related specifically to the parachutes or the ransom money, but they've never said anything publicly, so I don't think that they have anything. Okay. Well, I I feel pretty good about the other guy, the one you just mentioned. Yeah. The 60-volume case file compiled over the 45-year course of the investigation will be preserved for historical purposes at the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., But on the FBI website, there's currently a 28-part packet full of evidence gathered over the years, and I went through it, and it's like, it's so cool to actually see decades worth of, like, evidence on such Mm -hmm. a notorious case. It's very cool. So this hijacking happened over 50 years ago, and despite how many people out there have literally committed their lives to finding the truth... What happened to the hijacker of Northwest Orient Flight 305 and the rest of the ransom money remains a mystery and probably always will. And that's the story of D.B. Cooper. As two people that have had uh, panic attacks on planes, I would not love to have been a part of that, but he sounded so pleasant. He sounded so nice. He sounded really nice. You I know? was thinking about the fact that we've both had recently panic attacks on planes and mm-hmm. then it's like given us anxiety to get on the plane again. And I was like... Oh, 
he probably could have calmed me down in the midst of a panic attack. Yeah, honestly, his <laughs> presence sounded nice. And did the yeah. flight attendant mention if he was hot or not? Or was that ever mentioned in, in Nobody, any? <laughs> no. Was he a six or a seven? Like, did she rate him? I, or <laughs> Based off of the sketches, I would say at that time, he was probably like a four or five. Oh, okay. But, you know, if he's polite and, and gentlemanly, I, you know. That, may get, that gets you two points That's every time. You, yeah, yeah, so. Do you feel confident maybe you could solve this crime for the, do we, do we feel confident taking over for the FBI or do we just feel like, no, you did what you could do? And no, I feel like I'm not the person for this mostly because every time there's a suspect that like, sounds like they'd be a good option. I'm like he did it. That's it. <laughs> say, say less. Close the book. Close, close it. Let's move on with our lives. <laughs> he did it. <laughs> and that's why we don't solve crimes guys. That's why we talk about them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was really well done. Thanks. Love Thank you. you for listening. Oh, oh. <laughs> I love you too. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. To view detailed source material, as well as content from today, please visit us on Instagram and TikTok at Shorty's Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Shorty's Podcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Anna Katharina.